0: That song we just sang, Come Thou Fount, it's one of my favorite songs, and there's a a, a verse in that song that many of you are familiar with, where it says, here I raise my Ebenezer, and that means my rock of help or my stone of help. There's a lot of things that our culture is holding up, looking to for help, and it's the wrong things. They're lifting up their Ebenezer, and it's the wrong Ebenezer. They're looking to the wrong things to help them. This past weekend, we celebrate, we're still celebrating the the 4th of July. If you lived in my neighborhood, uh, we've been celebrating the 4th of July for the past two weeks, okay? Every night, as soon as the sun goes down, the fireworks begin. And God help them, apparently one of my neighbors, somewhere in my neighborhood, if they're watching it, I'm not saying names... Um, they were blasting fireworks well past midnight last night, just celebrating being American, and God bless them. I'm thankful for it. But here's the deal. I have, uh, I've struggled with um, people on social media, books, articles, blogs, and within younger evangelicalism, there is this sentiment that seems to be growing that has become anti-country, it's sort of the diminishment um, of, of our country and patriotism. So let me just say a couple of things about that this morning to sort of redirect our hearts and sort of I want to align some things. Being thankful for being an American is not at odds and not in conflict with being a Christian. They are not mutually exclusive things. And if you were saying those things, stop it, quit, Okay. They're not at conflict. The problem comes when we begin to elevate our immediate kingdom here to the neglect of God's kingdom. And that's where the problem comes. But I have never met, and I've been in ministry for over 15 years full time, I have yet to meet the person that confuses patriotism for their country over the kingdom of God. Most reasonable and sane people understand there is a difference between being thankful for our country and the kingdom of God. Okay? Most reasonable people. There are groups of fringe that confuse the two. I get it. But stop castigating everybody else with blanket statements saying that we are diluting both and, and messing them both up by being thankful. I, I don't know what it is this past year, these past few weeks and even this past weekend where I, I, was more th- I have been more thankful this past weekend to be an American. God bless America, I'm more thankful that I, that I live in Texas though, I'm just gonna tell you. And I'm even more thankful that I don't live in a place like Austin, Texas, or God forbid, the armpit of Texas, Houston, Texas. Man, we happen to live in the greatest state anywhere and in the greatest city anywhere else. And I am so thankful. I can be thankful for those things and still be thankful to the one who allows me to exist and to live and to thrive in the midst of that city and in the midst of that state. I can love my wife and not make an idol of my wife but be thankful that my God gave me my wife. I can love my kids and not make an idol out of my kids and still be thankful that God is the one that has given me my kids." I can love fireworks and I can love sweet tea and I can love apple pie and I can love cookouts and barbecue and not make idols out of those things and be thankful to God that he gives those things and not confuse the two. But the thing that we've got to remember about God's kingdom when it comes to um, understanding the gospel and what it is is that God's people are not tied to any one particular nation. And we have to and we must Understand that. God is building a kingdom that is bigger than the state of Texas and the city of Fort Worth, that is bigger than than just the United States. He is building a global kingdom. And for that, we say thank you even as we celebrate our independence. And I just feel like I need to say that to some of you because I think there are are some of us that, for for whatever reason, we feel shame in in some ways that we're proud to be an American. We're, We're not perfect. And we have a really, really long way to go. But I've had enough of just the guilt that sort of comes alongside this even within the context of the church. And enough is enough. God is building his kingdom. and It is a kingdom of black and white and yellow and brown and all the different colors, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we will keep that first. We're gonna keep the main thing the main thing. God is building his kingdom here on this earth just as it is in heaven. And in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, we have this narrative of God continuing to grow his kingdom through diversity and through a variety of people and calling them to be thankful for what God has called them to do. But building the kingdom of God of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and we pick up In verse 12 of Acts chapter 5, where the text says this, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Many signs and wonders were regularly done amongst the people by the hands of the apostles and they were gathered together in Solomon's portico. We pick up where we left off last week and we read that horrific story of Ananias and Sapphira being put to death by the Lord, not because they withheld a tithe, but rather because they were dishonest, first and foremost to God, and then secondly to their peers and to the church. And so God punished that severely, but but that's not the point of Ananias and Sapphira losing their life. It is a story that is wrapped up in the preceding verses, one about unity and walking with unity and being in community with people, being in the circle often enough and frequently enough that I'm able to take care of the people that are in my circle and they're able to take care of the needs that exist in my life. That's what we're trying to do when we're walking according to the gospel authentically with one another. And we have to be present to be able to do that. And then in transitions, this latter half of chapter five, after they've seen the church grow and multiply and it begins to thrive, and now the apostles are able to, supernaturally, able to perform signs and wonders. They're able to do miraculous things amongst the people. Why does God allow this to happen then? And why don't we experience that now in 2020? The reason this happens is because for this particular moment, there was this special outpouring in the apostles' ministry for God to grow his church. And so God was allowing these miraculous things to take place on on a very broad level, not on a very narrow level. And people were seeing and hearing and responding to the gospel because of it. God was building his kingdom here on this earth, just as in heaven. And it says they were gathered together in a location within the temple on the east wall called Solomon's Portico. Now here's a rendering on the screen of what this portico would have looked like. And so the people of God gather together in this particular location, and the apostles are preaching and proclaiming the gospel. But I want you to notice what's happening. They are proclaiming the gospel to people that are religious people, but yet have found themselves in a situation where they are extremely far from God. So they have a level of spiritual understanding, primarily the Jewish audience. These were religious individuals that knew the scriptures. And the apostles were giving their lives, teaching them and showing them and proclaiming the truth. Those that were far from God, they wanted them to come to know Christ. That's our mission here at our church. One of our core values at our church is that we just simply say relentless mission Meaning that everything we do and say and believe and sing about and teach about and and preach about, that it ought to always be connecting back to the overall mission of the church. And you ought to hear that mission regularly over and over and over and over again. Why? Because we have to hear it over and over and over again because come now found is right on another level, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. My heart in absence of the scriptures will gravitate towards things that are away from God. And so I need to hear that over and over and over again to remind myself of the things of God and what he has called me to do. Verse 13 goes on, he says, Now none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and they laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. This is how desperate they were to be healed and to be cleansed. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were healed. What we see here in the early days of the church And it ought to be something that we remind ourselves of as we move forward into the future is that the church's primary ministry was one of compassion and mercy towards those that lived in the margins of the culture. The cripples and the beggars and the poor. The poor financially, but more importantly, the poor in spirit that there was an aim and a purpose, that God's gospel was radically transforming, that all of a sudden it didn't matter what you look like or how much money you had or what kind of societal prestige you, you think you had, that the gospel was intended to reach all people of every socioeconomic background. And so we as a church ought to continue to support those types of ministries in our church as we engage all of our city. One of the ways that churches get this wrong is that they they tend to think that, that the primary purpose of the church is just entirely focusing on those areas. And one of the things that we want to make sure that we understand is that we are a church that is for our entire city. Every single person that comes to Fort Worth, Texas is in our our market, so to speak. They're they're in our target, if you will. We want every single human being that lives in Fort Worth to come to know and to hear and to respond to the gospel for the first time. At the same time that we aim at those people, we want to make sure that we continue to support uh, organizations that, that have been birthed out of this church like the Mercy Clinic, like the Fort Worth Pregnancy Center, like the the Metroplex Women's Clinic that's in Arlington that we we support and, and are affiliated with. We want to make sure that we are continually moving along in that direction, supportive of those, practicing generosity in the same way that the early church was ministering to those that were afflicted physically and spiritually. Now in verse 17, the the text begins to transition and and basically it describes this this narrative where because of the teaching of the apostles, they, they become arrested and they're imprisoned because of what God is doing through them. They're in prison in essence because they are proclaiming boldly the the kingdom of God and the gospel message. They're put in jail. And the way the text unfolds, they're put in jail. An angel appears at night, releases them from jail. They escape miraculously. They go right back to the portico, right back to teaching and preaching. The guards go up the next morning, and they're like, where are these guys? Let's bring them before. Let's try them. Let's convict them. Let's punish them some more. They're not there. They hear. They get wind. that Hey, they're back in the portico. They're teaching and preaching. They're proclaiming. Go get those guys and bring them back. They're going to have to give an account for what they've just done. And so 17 through about 30 um, is where we see these things start to take place. But then I want you to notice in verse 29, I want you to look with me as they get brought back to the court. They then began to speak to the religious leaders and notice what they say beginning in verse 29. He says this, We, the apostles, must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, you, and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, verse 33, it says they were enraged and wanted to kill them. No prosperity message here. Death, burial, resurrection, sin, repentance, deal with your stuff. Let God deal with you, right? Adjust your life and get it on board with what God's kingdom is doing. Like fix it and allow God to fix it and allow God to heal it. No soft pandering to the crowd, just direct boldness, clarity, great precision of the gospel. And if you skip down to verse 40, notice the response of what the religious leaders do to this proclamation. It says, and when they had called in the apostles, it says that they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So the consequence for obedience the result of faithfulness was a lashing. You ever been punished for doing the right thing? Ever received a lashing or, or you, if you got a whooping when you were growing up? I don't know, we, we, we can't really talk about that publicly right now, but like you, you, you did the right thing and got punished for it? And you feel like there's this sense of injustice that grows, and, and here these men, uh, they, were, they were enraged and wanted to kill them, all because of this message, they were disrupting what was going on in the culture and in the society. And it got me thinking this week, as we see the response, and we'll see the response in just a moment, of the apostles, it got me thinking, the Lord brought to mind 1 Peter 2, and how did Jesus respond to injustice? Like we're hearing those lingos in our culture, injustice, justice, and and cry out for justice and long for it. What did Jesus do in the midst of injustice? Well, we can look at 1 Peter 2, and and we can sort of get an idea, which is really a quote of Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, the suffering servant. But in 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter gives us some, some insight to this, and if you look in verse 21, He says this, for to this you have been called, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin and neither was deceit found in his mouth. What Peter teaches us about how Jesus responded to injustice, one of the very first things that we learn that Jesus did is he was patient. He was patient. He was patient, listen to this, unto death. When we ask the question, how long, O Lord, must I cry out? The answer for Christ in this moment was unto death. It doesn't make the injustice easier to swallow. To know that this was how serious Christ was ultimately coming to defeat sin, death, and evil, and injustices. And he comes as the suffering servant, but one day he's coming back as the conquering lion. One day he's going to set all of those things right because of his resurrection and what it teaches us. But if you keep reading... We see that not only was he patient, but we also learn from verse 23 in 1 Peter, he says this, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What Peter is telling us about Christ is that he committed himself to the him who judges justly. What this means is, according to the text, is this means that ultimately the pillow on which Jesus lays his head down is the sovereignty of God. Like Spurgeon said, ultimately at night we lay our heads down on the pillow of God's sovereignty and we trust that one day he's going to make every wrong right. He's going to wipe away every single tear one day. Maybe not in this life, but in a day to come. And one of the things that culture apart from Christianity doesn't understand, that only we as Christians who have hope can ultimately understand, is that lack of justice is not no justice. We hear this commonly in the speeches, no justice, no peace. But for the Christian, we understand that to be a little bit different. Why? Because lack of justice is not no justice. Ultimately, God is going to bring about justice. He will execute, so to speak, and he will make all the wrongs right. When he was reviled, he he did not revile in return. He did not respond. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. The problem in culture right now is this. When Jesus, as a disruptor, would come in and he would tear things down, the thing that Jesus was very careful and particular in doing, as he tore stuff down, Jesus always built it back up. And the problem right now that we're seeing and we're watching our culture do this is because everyone is for tearing it down, but no one has painted a compelling vision (coughs) that has sort of emerged ahead of all the other visions on how to build it back up. And there are ways and there are ideologies and there are men and women who have come before us hundreds of years before and some right now that are seeking to paint a picture of how to do that. And they're threatening in some ways on, on how, to, how to disrupt it on a major level with violence and those types of things. But he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. But I also notice that Peter helps us when we look at Christ and how he responded to this, we notice this, that Jesus, in the midst of injustice, continued to do good. He continued to do what was right. He never bought into the notion that, that this wrong is going to be responded by with this wrong, and the two wrongs will ultimately make the right. He didn't say ultimately and compromise his truth or his integrity or his right standing and righteousness saying that I'm gonna gonna sacrifice my principles and truth in order to accomplish ultimately what it is that I want to do. Jesus continually and he kept doing good in the midst of a culture that was tearing itself apart when he came. Christian, do you want to be counter cultural today? Continue to do good in a world that is seeking to tear itself apart, the very thing that we can do that is most helpful to our witness is to continue to do the things that God has called us to do that are embodied in the Scripture. Jesus rested in the fact that God was bringing salvation ultimately to the world through his wounds. But notice back in Acts, as we continue the story and it unfolds, after they received their lashing, look with me where it says in verse 41, he says, then they left the presence of the council. And it says that they rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is is Jesus I love those three little words in verse 41 worthy to suffer you see oftentimes we get it backwards and this is the paradox that we we live in we think that if I'm right and I do good therefore I will be rewarded by not having to suffer When the paradox of Christianity is this, is that when we do right and when we are good, and often when we are obedient and when we are faithful to what God has called us to do, we will in fact actually not be spared, but we will enter into a commendable phase where we are suffering because we have been deemed worthy for the gospel. And for the early church, they understood that that the consequence of faithfulness and obedience wasn't going to be popularity. It wasn't going to be wealth or prestige, but in fact, it was going to end up with imprisonment. And they deemed themselves to be worthy to suffer alongside and in the same way that Jesus suffered. This speaks radically in a different direction from the way that most in the Christian culture view what it means to follow Christ. We attach the, the easy blessings oftentimes that come along. And, and in God's grace and in his mercy, sometimes that is what happens. But more often than not, as we begin to, to narrow in on, on suffering, we begin to understand that in verse 41, when he says, counted worthy, we need to remember a couple of things. One, Jesus himself connects his suffering with our suffering. You remember this passage in Matthew 16 where he says, Jesus... Tells the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake is going to find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Matthew 5 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friend, I want to tell you this, that when he, they say worthy to suffer, they understood that in suffering, it's not despair that attaches to the believer, but rather in suffering is attached joy and power to the suffering you may say well that's a funny thing to say but I would point us to Philippians 3 where he says Paul says this to the church he says listen that I may know him the power of his resurrection that I may share in his suffering becoming like him from the dead that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead that I may know him and the power of his resurrection through suffering suffering is Tied to the joy of the believer. Suffering is tied to the faithful believer, to the obedient believer. It is tied to joy because it's this picture of of Revelation 12. You you remember this, this scripture. He says, worthy to suffer for the name. And he says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. For they love not even their lives, even unto death. Obedience unto death suffering unto death. Now you may be thinking, well, pastor, that does not sound like a gospel that I want to follow. And in my humanity, I'll just say to you, I'm, I'm right there with you, same team. I don't want to. I don't want to have to. And more often than not, I find myself in pastoral ministry when I get the opportunity to do pastoral counseling Oftentimes, helping people understand that that sometimes, one, they think that they're suffering for the name of Jesus, but really, they're just suffering because they've made really bad choices in their life. And what I mean by that is is that your life is hard. It, It is hard, but it's a lot harder when you make the wrong decisions and choices. Sometimes we can help it. Sometimes we can't help it, what happens to us. But in pastoral counseling, I oftentimes find myself with people going, okay, well, tell me the problem and what's the issue? How did we get from, from, from here? How did we go from there to here? And, and what happened in that space in between? And, and in my own life, I'll just say this, that m- a lot of the suffering that I've endured, even as a pastor, it was because, not because I was suffering for the name of Jesus, but it was because I said the wrong things in, in the wrong way and with the wrong timing, with the wrong tone. I, I was harsh. I was, I was too upfront. I was too direct. Or, or I didn't handle a situation the way I should have. It wasn't Jesus' fault. It wasn't God's fault. It was my fault. I needed to learn and get better. I needed to adapt and understand. But yet there are times in our lives where we go, I, I, I maybe handled that as best I could with the best understanding and the knowledge that I had, and I'm suffering. And so I ought to have joy that's attached to that type of suffering. <clears throat> this morning I, I woke up to... Um, I guess with a with a fireworks headache, if if you will. Um, so to speak, and um, but I also woke up to to two uh, really uh, startling things. One, I found out this morning that Kanye West is running for president. Okay, that was a shock to the system. All right, we've got a third party candidate coming in. It's a disruptor. What's going to happen? Like, who knows? Right? Um, it, one guy said it could just be a big ploy to sell an album at some point. I, I don't know, but I was like, man, 2020 is lit. Okay, this is crazy. All right, 2020 is going to become its own phrase to people when they're telling you, like, hey, don't mess up. Hey, don't 2020 this, Andrew, okay? Nathan, don't 2020. Whatever you're about to do, don't do it. But I also woke up and I read the news this morning that in the city of New York... Several weeks ago, their police department, uh, the mayor in particular, voted to defund their anti-crime unit and to take plainclothed officers off the streets and just sort of walk away from certain areas. And the article that came out was, was basically saying, and there, there will be dissertations written on this as to the why, but they were just quoting the facts. and This is what they said. This blew my mind. It said that since the anti-crime unit has been gone from this particular area in New York City, that shootings... Shootings, not fireworks shootings, not assaults, not not just petty theft, I mean, like gunfights in the city, have risen 205%. That it is the the bloodiest and most dangerous that it has been in over 24 years was the last time they can measure it that it was this bad. 24 years, 205% with the absence of those guys. In that area. Now, like I said, there will be guys that write dissertations on this that will, do, will get PhDs conferring, trying to understand the why with all of this in criminal justice. And it got me thinking this morning, it's one thing to lose a, a police force, whatever your political motive is, whatever your view on that is irrelevant. But think about this in the context of the believer. You lose this, this group of men that are that are that are intent uh, or that should be there to serve and to protect. And then without their presence, it seems to be without their presence, like just lawlessness in the midst. 205%. Think about that. And it's one thing for us to lose a police force, but it's another thing for the believer to go through life or the so-called believer thinking that they're walking with a police force in the sense of the spirit of God embodied in them, full of the spirit, walking in protection. And what if, hypothetically, we don't believe this theologically, just play this game with me for just a moment. But what if, what if God's blessing sort of comes off of his people, not because of obedience, but rather because of disobedience, and we lose that protection? I hold to the belief theologically that can't happen, that once sealed with the Spirit, you're sealed. He's the guarantor of salvation. But it got me thinking about the the travesty, pun intended, of so many believers that go through life without the power and the protection of calling upon the Spirit of God in their life, not walking full of the Spirit. And they go through life without walking in obedience not ever really knowing what that is and there are men and women and and young men and and, and young women and old and everybody in between that are leaning into a prayer prayed 20 years ago but have no fruit in their life that demonstrates that that God has them that that, that they understand that they're walking with Him and, and they know Him what a terrible way to live you ever walked with God and knew that God was right next to you and like you were, you were with him and walking and obedient? You remember that feeling? Remember what that's like, the certainty of that? And my father is with me. Last night, we, we blew some fireworks up at my house. And my little son, Duke, who's watching this right now, we, we had this couple moments where, uh, and, and my, my nephews, we had these moments with these little kids where we had some big fireworks and some small ones and we'd take the little lighter, we'd walk up to it and then they'd get closer to the firework, they, they would start doing this, right? And the first time they'd see the fuse light, you know, he would, he would drop the lighter and he, Duke would just take off running, right? And I'd be like, come back here, you didn't light the fuse. And so what I would do is his dad is I would, I would grab his hand and I would calm the hand from shaking. He was doing this and I just, I would grab his hand. And in my right hand, I would take the end of that, of that lighter and I would, I would just calm it, I just would steady it and I would be very gentle and he'd walk it up to that fuse and get real close. I was like, don't, don't drop it, it's okay. And he, he couldn't light some of the fireworks unless I grabbed them, unless I was with him, and right there with him, and, and so we, we would light it, and then it would go, and we'd still run away, you know, in panic and, and in terror. But I thought, isn't this just a great picture of what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer, where I'm, I'm shaken and weary, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm filled with anxiety and, and, and fear and, 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 and doubt, that the, the Spirit of God comes alongside me, and he grabs me, and he just... He just calms me when I'm walking with him in the spirit. He's like, hey, it's, it's okay. We're all right. You're, you're going to be okay. I'm here with you. I think some of you need to hear that this morning. Wherever you're at, whatever you're dealing with, whatever your struggle is, God's just saying to you, like, you're going to be okay. I've got you. You're going to be just fine. Friend, God loves you. He loves you so much that he put his son on the cross to die for your sins and mine. That's how much he loved you, obedience unto death. Would you receive him this morning? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that in the goodness of your gospel, you can save us from our sins. We pray now that if there's anyone here that does not know you, they would call upon your name and just simply say, God, save me save me from my sins save me god god would you save them right now we pray that your spirit would come and inhabit our praises and our songs and that you would calm us god that we would raise our ebenezer our rock of help but it would be you who are and is our help we pray these things in christ's name would you stand and would you respond And sing as unto the Lord and as God leads you this morning.